Thanks for listening to the Church in the City podcast. Subscribe on iTunes and follow at Church in the City. We've been on uh, a pretty incredible journey these last two months. I hope you found it incredible. I found it really impactful. Uh, We've been on a journey of unpacking uh, somewhat of a shift in how we see ourselves as a local church. It's not been a wholesale change of character. It's not like we're, we're totally rebuilding the house. We're just recognizing the wallpaper that's up in the house. It's an admission of what God has been doing in and through us as a local church. And we always want to be doing that. We don't ever want to just duck our heads and say, well, well you know, church has to be done, and so we're going to do it. We always want to be saying, Lord, what are you doing? How do we say yes? We haven't been making ourselves up into some perfect picture that we then want to try to fit ourselves into, but we've actually, as I like to say, just been more fully admitting who we are, more fully admitting who we are. It's a sharpening of the picture of ourselves, or as I like to say, we're, we're recognizing ourselves more clearly. Recognizing ourselves more clearly. Uh, Jess and I got married 11 years ago this summer. And uh, yeah, she deserves a medal. Um, But we're not any more married now, technically, than we were in the first exact moment that we said our vows. We first said our vows and we covenanted uh, our wedding vows to each other right then and there in that moment. We were married as much as we are now. But let me tell you, we are married more now, 11 years in. And what do I mean by that? I think you get it. We're married more now in our understanding of each other, in our understanding of who we are. And that's what this series is something of. We're not any more or less who we are. We are more re- we're recognizing ourselves more clearly recognizing ourselves more clearly. And that recognition and admission of ourselves is really based on two things. Firstly, it's based upon what God has revealed in his word, in the Bible, about the church, because this is the authority. We never hear God's voice and go willy-nilly off of this, or we didn't hear God's voice. Or as John Piper likes to say, if you want to be really absolutely sure that it is God's voice you are hearing, stand up, get your Bible, open it, and read it out loud. This is the authority, but it's also based upon something else, and that is what God has spoken about us and to us as church in the city, specifically as this local church. What's our DNA? What's our uniqueness? Where are we here in this city, in this moment, in this 2018? And that, if, if, if this is the authority, God's word, then what God has spoken to us is the specificity, and that's been a little more what we've been unpacking recently. And we've been calling it a relaunch of our vision and values, because that's what a church calls this kind of thing, right? And we want to make sure we don't step outside of what churches are supposed to do. But we've been calling it a relaunch of our our, our vision and values, not in the sense that we are creating a rigid box to sort of step into, but we've we've been revealing a crafted, intentional expression. It's been a gentle framework. And we've been saying it's it's the framework, not the hard work. Now, it's hard work, in a sense, it's a commitment, and it's an agreement to hold to things together, but the framework is really just recognizing who we already are, who we already are. So hopefully in this last two months, you haven't heard anything preached, it's been like, well, I haven't experienced that here, what are you talking about? Hopefully. It's just been, oh, that's who we are. I recognize us there. 
And as we've unpacked these foundational elements, we've, we've put a stake in the ground at a few places. And just for the sake of time, I want to go through quickly some of what we've preached over the last several weeks to catch us up. I know we have several people visiting, so this is where we've been for the last couple of, or for the last couple of months. We started the series with a pretty audacious statement. It's a statement that permeates and undergirds everything that we think and do here at Church in the City. And we've been calling it our statement of belief. And that statement of belief is this, that the power and presence of Jesus deeply transforms lives by gifting us intimacy with the Father and by freeing us from everything that holds us down and holds us back. You know, at the heart of that statement is, is, a, is a very simple truth at the core, and that is this. God is a God who transforms us. God is a God who transforms us. And God has done it and only does it through one person, and that is the person of Jesus Christ. God always transforms and only does it through Jesus. So if God desires to transform us, And that's what we believe. If God desires to transform brokenness and destruction into wholeness, and that's what we believe. And if God only does that through the person of Jesus Christ, and that's what we believe, then this belief that undergirds everything gives rise necessarily to a rallying cry that has to emanate from our hearts. It's the only thing we can say in response to that belief. And that is this, our banner statement, which we have said is, all of Jesus for everyone. All of Jesus for everyone. Why? Because God transforms. Well, who does he do it through? Jesus. Okay, then I want all of Jesus for everyone. All of Jesus for everyone. It's really the answer and, and the reason to everything. Why do we share the gospel? Well, why do we put out the signs to tell people we start at 10 a.m.? Why do we have a children's ministry where we declare the greatness of God to the next generation? Why do I want to pray for you if you need healing? Why do I want to see you and your marriage and your family restored? Why, 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 why? Because all of Jesus for everyone. Well, for how long? Until everyone has all of Jesus. But just the, just the Jesus I'm comfortable with, right? The Jesus that fits on my bumper sticker thinking, no, all of him. Even the parts that challenge us. But yeah, for the people that I'm really comfortable hanging out with and think like me and look like me and I kind of slide in really easily with, right? No, for everyone, just as God intended. All of Jesus for everyone is an invitation and a challenge wrapped up in a banner. And it's carried by covenanting things together you and I, in this local church. How does a local church carry something like all of Jesus for everyone? We necessarily must join in certain, I'm going to use this word, promises together. Promises that we're going to step into together and we're going to hold to together. And we've called these things our values. Our values. It's the way we take up this banner of all of Jesus for everyone. And we as an eldership have identified five key values that we want to gently but clearly hold ourselves to individually and corporately as an entire church. So firstly, just to run through where we've been the last month, if our heart's desire is to see all of Jesus for everyone, then our chief value, the first value, has to be corporately all of us for Jesus. See what we did there? All of us. For Jesus. Why? Because Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. So for, for all of Jesus, for everyone to come to pass, we must always be asking the question, how am I holding back 
from loving Jesus with all that I am and all that I have. It's the value that sets the tone for all the others. The values aren't in any particular order except for this one. All of us for Jesus. It truly is one value to rule them all. Yes, I am a nerd, but you guys know what I'm talking about right there. So. That's all we got, folks. See you next week. That's a joke where you're like, oh, that one hurt. I kind of wish I thought of that one. <laughs> Furthermore, we yearn for the manifest presence of God, do we not? And we yearn for the voice of God. Yes? Because where God's presence is, so is his voice. And where God's voice is, we want our response to be obedience. Right? So another value that we hold to is we abide in God, we move with God. We abide in God, we move with God. And we continually ask the question, how am I actively seeking the presence of God and not just sitting there, but obeying his voice? My posture is one of listening, waiting, obeying, all in response to the voice of God. Corporately, we covenant that with one another. You guys okay? Furthermore, we agree with Jesus where he was speaking to his disciples in John 11. And listen, listen imagine Jesus saying this to you. You should believe so that you see the glory of God. Jesus saying, I hope you believe so that you will see the glory of God. How many of you want to see the glory of God? Manifest daily, poured out every day, even and especially in the face of impossibility. So how about this for our value? We always remember that we serve the God of the impossible. We always remember that we serve the God of the impossible. Matt challenged us two weeks ago when he preached around this question. How am I engaging with the faithful God, the God who is already at work doing the impossible? How am I engaging with the faithful God to see him do the impossible? And Matt shared so wonderfully about large-scale impossibility that God just moves right through. But also everyday impossibility that God sees us through and faithfully walks with us through. We always remember we serve the God of the impossible. And then last week, Steve introduced us to the reality that all of Jesus for everyone only happens when we each step out to make Jesus known. It only happens when we make Jesus known. And that actually our efforts, our fears, even our passions don't really play into the determining factor as to whether or not people receive Jesus and enter into salvation. Why? Because only God saves And he only does it through Jesus Christ. And because of that freedom, that exoneration from the burden of making it happen, we get the invitation from God to partner with him. And that gives rise to our fourth value. We invite others to join us in knowing Jesus. We invite others to join us in knowing Jesus. And therefore, we're always asking the question, how does my relationship with Jesus overflow into inviting others to know him. So as we reveal our last value today, I don't have a drum roll, but if I have one. As we reveal our last value, we're going to ask a question of togetherness. We're going to ask a question of unity. We're going to ask a question of family, of how we are viscerally, practically, actually together. A question of unity. Before we get there, though, I think you would agree with me, I hope you would, that division, division is easy. 
Division requires basically no effort. You know why? Because it's natural. Division is natural. Division doesn't have to be fought for because all you really have to do for division to happen is just basically notice it, right? There's a hundred reasons in this room right now, just from where I'm sitting, that could be used to divide us. There's a hundred reasons. And if we really put some effort to it, we could find a thousand more reasons to be divided. And I'm not making light of differences. Differences are impactful and meaningful, but differences are different than division. Division is something that pre-exists, and we choose to activate it and walk in it or not. Some of you might not know this, but you'll find out pretty quickly. I'm a little bit of a knucklehead, and I always have been. I get a, li- I get a little bit mouthy, and I like to argue. Good, good. No amens there. <laughs> When I was a junior in high school, which I just realized as I was preparing the sermon is 20 years ago, uh, when I was a junior in high school, um, I had a free um, elective open in one of my semesters, so I decided that I would take a psychology class uh, in Orange Park High School in Orange Park, Florida. So, um, I, I, well, Sunitha can tell you, Dr. Sunitha Chani can tell you, it takes a little more than one elective semester in high school to make a dent in your psych- psychological uh, prowess, but uh, I was excited to take the class, but there's two things that you should need to know about the teacher in this class. Firstly, uh, for whatever reason, the teacher in this class, she just vehemently hated Christians. And secondly, she found out before I even, before the class even started, that I was a Christian. I don't know how. Maybe it was my what would Jesus do bracelet or something. <laughs> so you had one too. Don't laugh. You... You had five or six, and you'd pick, come on. So I walked in the first day of the class, and she said, we, we took role, and as the class started going, she said, James, do you know why I hate Christians? I was like, awesome, where is this in the syllabus? <laughs> and I said, no, I, I, I don't know why. She said, because Christians are us and them people. Christians are us and them people, because it's us over here, and we're saved, and it's them over here who are lost and just worthless. And I was like, well, I don't think anybody's worthless, but um, okay. And she said, I don't want to be an us and them person. I'm not an us and them person. I said, so can I just ask a question? So uh, just, just to clarify what you're saying is that there are Christians over here who are us and them people, and then there's you over here who's not an us and them person. And I'm just, just... She's like, well, well, that's, I, I'm just saying, and I said, no, I'm just trying to clarify. It was a fun semester, to say the least. <laughs> Division is easy. Division takes no effort. Division literally takes opening our eyes. But there's something different about unity, isn't there? Yeah. Something different about unity. Unity is hard. Unity is not natural. The inertia of humanity, I'm not sure if you've turned on a device ever in your life, is not toward unity. Division is where, is where we head all the time. Unity needs a reason. Unity needs to be established, and unity needs to be fought for and maintained. Unity has to go beyond mere agreement, or else the second we disagree about anything, we descend into division once again. So, unity needs a specific design, and it has to be cultivated And I want to say to you, unity has to be continually celebrated for it to be viable. Well, I got good news. 
God has designed a specific unity for us to walk in as a church. God has empowered us to guard it. And it is worth it to God for us to celebrate it. And that's what I want to unpack a little bit of today. And all that's been the introduction, so you can start the clock now. Uh, And we're asking this question today. How am I guarding unity within this local church? How am I guarding unity within this local church? And in doing that, I want to reveal our last of our five values. We are with and for one another. We are with and for one another. We're going to discover the unity God has designed, and we're going to discover how we guard it. So, what God-designed unity do we have business having as a local church? Well, we're going to spend some time in Ephesians chapter 2, so if you want to turn there, go right ahead. It'll be on the screen behind me as well. We're going to jump around a bit, and you guys know my affinity for long chunks of Scripture, and I do not apologize for it. You're going to get some more today. But Ephesians is so rich, there's so much going on, and I, and I want to just set just a little bit of context. The Apostle Paul, who is the author of this letter, this book of Ephesians, is writing to Gentiles in the city of Ephesus, Gentiles who were non-Jews, but who had believed in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And part of what he's establishing for them is their right, their reality, that they are now a part of the people of God, something that up until the t- up until the, the revelation of Jesus was reserved for Israel, but now Paul was saying everyone can be a part of the family of God through Jesus alone. But this this redemption that Paul is talking about, this undergirding redemption, is actually the great and mighty work that's open to all. And so we're going to take a look at what God has purchased for us and established for us in that, even though Paul's context is speaking directly to Gentiles in their context as not being Jews. Does that make sense? So there's an undergirding redemption that applies to us all. So as we read the first seven verses of Ephesians chapter 2, I want you to perk your ears up for the markers of unity. Just look, just look for things, listen for things that, est- that help to establish unity amongst the people of God. You happy? We Okay. I'm always concerned with your happiness, remember. (laughs) Chapter 2, verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Division's easy. Just look around. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. It's that moment you realize you don't have the entire book of Ephesians underlined in your Bible. I want to submit to you that God has designed a unity for us, and we have unity in identity. Unity in identity. When we first place our faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord, there is a transactional, unilateral position change before God. It's irrevocable. And that That transformation takes place at our core and totally remakes our identity. 
Where does our identity start? Well, the first part of Ephesians chapter 2 tells us before knowing Jesus, our identity, our position before God has certain characteristics, but it's summed up nicely and succinctly is as you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Now, that word dead is interesting. We have to get the biblical, the Hebrew understanding of dead here. The, 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 this understanding of dead is not in the grave. It's not not living. It's living lifelessly in separation from God. So we're dead in our transgressions and sins in separation from God. And that gives us certain characteristics like being enslaved to certain things. Like the ruler of the kingdom of the air. The spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. We were gratifying the desires and the cravings of our flesh. And we were, listen to this, by nature, subjects of deserving of wrath. You ever hear someone say, well, I, I, don't, I do nice things. I don't sin. It doesn't, the things we do or don't do, that's not the level of sin. It's in our nature. By existing, we were dead in our transgressions and sins. But then we start to see an identity change. We see a fundamental shift happen in our identity due to Jesus' death and resurrection. We continue in Ephesians chapter 2. Let's pick it up in, in verse 12. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. And here come my five favorite words in all of Scripture. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We see a positional change before God. Why? Because God is the God who transforms us all the time. With a change in position comes a change in identity. Well, what, what is this new identity? Instead of dead in our transgressions, now we're made alive in Christ. And just as we had to get the biblical understanding of dead, we have to get the biblical understanding of alive. And this alive means not just standing here in the same room breathing. This alive means in relationship to God. In relationship to God. The, the separation of God that we, that we used to, from God that we used to have has now been made absent from our life and is replaced by relationship to God. It's a transactional change. Just look at the way some of it's described. Seated in the heavenly realms with Christ Jesus. Don't ask me to explain that theologically. I'm just a man. Seated in the heavenly realms. But by faith, we understand that our identity is now raised up and seated in heaven with Jesus. And I love this phrase. We who were once far away have been brought near. Here's why, here's why I've parked here for a minute. We've said that unity has to have a reason. We've said that unity has to have an establishment. Well, how about this reason? If you believe in Jesus Christ, that he died on the cross for your sins, and that God has raised him from the dead, then you have the fullness of whole relationship with God. And therefore, my identity is rooted in what your identity is rooted in. You are seated in the heavenly realms with Christ Jesus. I am seated in the heavenly realms with Christ Jesus. You're made alive in Christ. I'm made alive in Christ. And that, my friends, is unity in identity. Unity in identity. How does the rest of Ephesians 2 put it? It's like a celebration at the end of this chapter. It just keeps getting better. Paul writes in verse 19, 
Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So let's look at where we've gone from. Because of those five words, but now in Christ Jesus, we've gone from sinners to citizens. We've gone from foreigners to family, from far to near, from being broken to a body. From separated from God, dead in our transgressions, separated to being the very church, the holy dwelling in which God dwells by his spirit. From divided to unity in identity. And I want to say, just as a quick challenge, because of this unity in identity, can I just challenge us, and I challenge myself as much on this as well, that as the family of God in this local church, our identity in Jesus, our shared unity and identity, should be the first way that we regard each other. I know that there are many differences, and there are beautiful, great differences, but the way I should regard you first, foremost, without apology, is that's my sister. That's my brother. We have unity in identity. That's a doorway that the, that the world doesn't get to walk through every day, but we get to as a local church. Yes? Unity in identity. There's another kind of unity that we have together. And, this, and unity in identity allows for this. We have unity in mission. We have unity in mission. I wish we had more time to spend here, but I've got to zoom. I, we're going to touch on two primary missions that are undertaken as a result of unity, unity in two specific missions. Firstly, we have unity in the mission to mature. We are on a mission to mature. Turn a couple of chapters over in Ephesians, to Ephesians chapter 4. Common, these are well-known verses, but, but they speak so impactfully to what we're discussing today. Let's pick it up in verse 11, the mission to mature. So Christ himself gave, we see God designing God establishing, Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers. Why? To equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become what? Mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Down in verse 14, he continues, Then we will no longer be infants. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head. That is Christ. Now, we've defined maturity before, and I'll remind us of it again. Maturity is listening to and saying yes obediently to Jesus. Listening to and obediently saying yes to Jesus. Maturity is an individual characteristic, but you know what? Maturity is a church-wide characteristic as well. Maturity is a church-wide characteristic. And the mission to mature allows something singular for us to hold on to. It's a direction, a devotion, an intention that allows us as one church body to say, this is the way we have turned. We are on a mission to mature. And here's what's beautiful about that. All the things that are intended to divide or that we can walk through into division... They don't matter in the mission to mature. 
Whether you're a man or a woman, this race, that race, live in this neighborhood, this class, whether you have that job, this job, or no job, whatever the status of any stage of your life, none of it disqualifies us from the mission to mature in Jesus Christ. None of it disqualifies you. There's not a time you need to wait to start doing it. There's not a time in your life where you need to do it more. We're always on the mission to mature. We're also on a mission to multiply. We're on a mission to multiply. You know the for everyone portion of all of Jesus for everyone? We actually didn't think that up, full disclosure. We didn't think it up. God did. It's God's idea. From the moment we know Jesus is Savior, God invites us intimately to partner with him in actually bringing others to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. God makes unmistakably clear what he thinks about people who do not yet know Jesus. Just a couple examples. 2 Peter chapter 3. Peter writes, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Jesus himself says in Luke 19, I came to seek and to save that which is lost. I came for that. We could go page by page through our Bible and pointing out there's God pursuing those who don't know him. There's God pursuing those who don't know him. But God also makes something else unmistakably clear. He makes it unmistakably clear that he has a desire for us to partner with him as he pursues those who don't know him. 2 Corinthians 5. Most of you know this verse well. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. There's identity, again. And what springs right from identity? Mission. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, and, watch out, gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us, wow, the message of reconciliation. Okay, you guys know I don't usually preach like this, but I want you to repeat after me. God has committed. committed. Come on, say it again. God has committed committed to me me his message. message. Wow. That is not the way I would have done it on God's part. But he has chosen that way for us to partner with him. So as Steve preached last week, we invite others to to join us in knowing Jesus. Then guess what? That is a mission we all undertake together. That's a mission to multiply. Jesus reminds us simply in the Great Commission, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all I have commanded you, and I am with you to the very end of the age. I know there's much, 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 much more to unpack on this, the topic of us multiplying and, and carrying the ministry of reconciliation. But for the sake of what we're studying today, we have unity in the mission to multiply. We have unity in our identity. And that should be the way we regard one another. We have unity in our mission. The mission to mature and the mission to multiply. But we've asked a question today. In our last five minutes, I want to bring it back to this. We need to circle back to this question that we've asked. The question that gets to the heart of this value, we are with and for one another. It's the question, how am I guarding unity in this local church? How am I guarding unity in this local church? Unity has to have a basis. It has to have a reason. And God has established a glorious unity for us in identity and mission. Now, I've spent most of the time in this sermon on those two things for two reasons. Firstly, so, that, so you know that the idea of unity is not my idea. 
It's not just comfortable for a church leadership to have a church that's in unity. <laughs> it is more, but it's not. <laughs> but what, we as elders didn't sit around and think up the idea, it would be awesome if we could be in unity. <laughs> it's not just a church in the city calling card. It's God's idea, his unity. But also, we need to clearly understand that God didn't just establish unity. He considers it worth guarding. Considers it worth maintaining and fighting for. And so should we. And I want to say to you that I think guarding unity actually isn't that complicated. We just have to believe it's worth it. I I wish that this was going to get more complicated because it would be more fun to preach. But actually, it's not that complicated. I believe that the unity that God has designed for us in identity and mission is worth it. And my hope is that we don't need to laboriously unpack it because I've only got a few minutes left, but that it would just be so clear. So how do we guard it? I want to submit to you. Let's go to the first part of Ephesians 4, and let's let these verses answer the question for us. How do we guard unity? As a prisoner of the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Listen, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. As much as we want it to be theologically mysterious, as much as we might, it might be a better social media post for this to be really esoteric, and dare I say even sexy, guarding unity comes down to something very simple I want to submit to you. And that's this, that the currency of unity, what purchases it, maintains it the currency of unity is not likability it's not sameness or homogeneity it's not even agreement the currency of unity is honor the currency of unity is honor honor that's such an antiquated old word i thought this was a sermon not a downton abbey episode (laughs) honor that's a curmudgeon word no i want to submit to you it's not here's here's what i mean by honor honor is bearing with one another in love Honor is being gentle and patient, keeping the bond of peace. Honor is living a life worthy of the calling we received. And let me tell you, friends, that's not antiquated. That's revolutionary. And it's anointed. And it says to the world, wow, surely God is among them at church in the city. I cannot figure out how they treat each other so honorably. It's confounding. I think of all of our values, actually, this is the one that instantly sets us apart from the world the most. The tone in here, and I get it. I am, I am so imperfect in this area. This is the biggest case, case of do as I preach, not as I do. But we must be honorable. Honor answers the question how we are with and for one another. And I think it's two simple sides of the same coin. It's... Honor is rarely the what, it's the way. Does that make sense? The what can be lots of different things. The what may be a season of disagreement or discussion or navigating differences. But differences are made beautiful when we walk in the honor that is worthy of the calling that we've received. So here's how I think we guard unity in this local church. Firstly, we give honor. I know, hang on with me. What does that mean? It means we're patient. It means we're gentle. It means we yield in our fully, always, never wrong, right to be right. It means, we, it means we're gentle. 
It means we bear with one another, and it means we celebrate one another. We give honor. And I mentioned two sides of the same coin. Can I say that the other, thing, the other way that we guard unity in, a lo- in this local church is let's have our lives be lives that invite honor too. I don't want anybody to hear that, well, I'm going to come in and be the you-know-what, and uh, people are just going to honor me. Well, how about having a life that invites honor as well? And you know how you do that? Spoiler alert, you've heard it before. Patience, gentleness, humility, bear with one another. Dare I say submit to one another. You know one chapter later in Ephesians, when Paul starts writing all of those, all of our favorite submission verses, you know, about husbands and wives and servants and masters and children and parents and all the stuff that you, you know, print for t-shirts. You know, before he says any of that, he says submit to one another in love, out of reverence for Christ. Honor is the way. It's the, it's the flavor. It's the tone. That's how we're with and for one another. That's how we live a life worthy of the calling that we've received. We just have, we just have two more minutes. And I, I, was, I was wrestling with how to respond to this. And I, I'm, I'm, I struggle with this maybe being cheesy, but you know me. Um, and I don't think it is. I would like us to do something prophetic looking forward as a church. I want to invite you, if you would, just to stand as we come to a close. And keep in mind, as we do this, we, we want to say that we, we're, we're guarding something that we believe is true and we want it to continue to be true. And now that you've stood and you're comfortable in your maybe non-comfort zone, I want you to get out into the aisles and I want you to come up front. Come on. Come up front. Come up front. This is, not, this is not manipulation. This is not kumbaya. This is not a fireside, you know, moment. Yeah. What? What I'm trusting for here, but this, is, this, is, this, is what I, this is what I'm hoping for us to see. I, I, this, seriously, this is not just self-gratuitous. I, I, I'm, what I'm trusting for here is a physical picture, a physical statement from us as a church that says God has established ways for us to be in unity. It's worth it in God's heart for unity to be, unity to be fought for. And for us, prophetically standing next to one another, what we want this to mean is, yes, we are with and for one another in giving honor. So as we're here, I've asked Mark, uh, just as he closes the meeting, to just pray for us as a church. We would be with and for one another because we have a unity established by God. And I want to say to you, as an elder and as a friend, I think, to most of you, it's my joy to be stepping into this with you, to be standing alongside you. I'm with you and I'm for you. And when I do that imperfectly, I'll look you in the eye and say, I'm sorry, but I want to honor you. And I want to have your honor. Not because it's more comfortable, although it is, but because that's how God has designed it. And that's what we want to step in together. Mark, would you? I just had a picture of Jesus casting out a lasso. In my mother tongue, we say lasso. And he just started to pull it. And as he pulled it, it cinched us together and brought us forward. And James just did so well 
in presenting that to us, but it's the love of God that compels us. And as he pulls us, we're drawn in and we can be nothing else but united by his love. So God, I just thank you for just the privilege of being counted your very own, that we belong to you as sons and daughters. That's our identity. And I just thank you. It is our call and commission to be united in love. And so we just allow you to draw us in any divisions that uh, we're holding on to, we release in favor of you, your goodness. And I thank you that your word speaks so clearly about just how good and pleasant it is when your people dwell together in unity. It's not a physical place, but it's a position, positioning ourselves, standing in our identity, being in your spirit. And it's there that you release more of your spirit, that oil that flows down from the head and onto the beard of Aaron, and onto his robes, and out the door into the world. And so we just say, do that through this body, God, that we would be so united in you, so submitted, everything else we would let go of so that we can be more for you, that more of you would come, more of your anointing. As we go into the offices and hospitals and schools, or if we're just home with our kids, whatever it is, God, there would be more of your anointing upon us because our hearts are for you. We're united as a family before you. We just hold on to that and we say, have your way, God. You are so good to us. And just bless this house. Bless your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for listening to the Church in the City podcast. Subscribe on iTunes and visit us at churchinthecity.us.